Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 261 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and I'm joined today by Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, this is an episode we recorded a few months ago to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash StarQuest for their generosity in making this and all our shows at StarQuest possible. We gave them early exclusive access, but now we're sharing it with you to show you one of the benefits of being a patron. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about today? Today, we're going to be uh, discussing subjects like whether you can be possessed by an angel, the hollow moon theory, the Genesis flood and the younger Dryas flooding, whether there were actually two Marys in the raising of Lazarus account, how we got chapters and verses in the Bible, the Aramaic of the Lord's Prayer, the Philadelphia experiment, Ouija boards, King Arthur, the Nation of Islam, and more. Excellent. So, folks, please enjoy this show. The first question comes from Art, who writes, Hey, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on the hollow moon theory? And would you consider doing an episode on it? Well, I I definitely have a, a plan to do an episode on the hollow moon theory. I haven't I haven't dug into the subject too deeply at this point. For people who may not be familiar, the hollow moon theory is belief that the moon contains large cavities uh, it, under the surface, uh, maybe it's even a sphere that is just hollow on the inside, kind of like, you know, um, a lot of balls are you know, that you would play with. It's just the like an outer shell of plastic and it's empty inside. And that's kind of um, an extreme but archetypical uh, idea about what the hollow moon might be like. There are also claims associated with the hollow moon theory that not only is it hollow, but it's actually an artificial structure that is a spaceship that was orbited around the Earth. In terms of what I think about it, like I said, I haven't dug into it too deeply. I am suspicious of this claim. Uh, we have seismic information about the moon. And also we can, you know, kind of tell what its mass and density is because of orbital mechanics. You know, it has its gravity has an influence on the earth. And so we can calculate since we, and we know how far away it is because we can see how far away it is. We can even measure it to phenomenally small distances by bouncing radio waves and laser beams off reflectors we've left on the surface of the moon. So we can get really precise calculations about its mass and its density. And the mains, although there are some interesting things that hollow moon theorists point to, the mainstream consensus is that it's a solid object and not a spaceship. Um, and so I tend to defer to that until I see good evidence to the contrary. Um, also, I'd point out that some of the hollow moon theorists believe that it arrived within human history and within recorded history even. They'll point to legends of like early Mesopotamian and other civilizations that imagine a time before the moon 
and say, ah, see, there was a time before we had the moon. Um, it must be a recent arrival. So it must be like an alien spaceship. The problem is every culture in the world speculates about how things got to be the way they are. And so everybody has creation stories and the moon is a big part of human experience. It's the biggest, brightest thing in the night sky. And so everybody has a creation story about how the moon got there. And thus, everybody imagines a time before there was a moon simply because, well, if if the moon was created at some point, that means there must have been a time before the moon. And so I don't think that these uh, folkloric tales are have particular evidential value. They're just a natural consequence of people having um a creation story about the moon. It doesn't really mean that there was a time in human history before there was a moon. Also, various life forms have biological cycles that are tied to the lunar cycle, uh, you know, such as their reproductive schedules and things like that. And the only way you'd have life forms on Earth that are tied to the actions of the moon in the sky is if the moon has been there for evolutionary timescales so that these creatures adapted to the presence of the moon and, you know, the tides it causes and things like that over millions of years. So I think in particular, the idea of a recent arrival of the moon is contradicted by the scientific data we have. But we will have, uh, until I'm able to do an episode of it on it, we will have links to information about the hollow moon theory, as well as information about animals that tune their behavior to lunar cycles. And Jimmy, everyone knows that the moon is actually a giant space dragon egg, as as told us by the worst Dr. Uh, episode ever. <laughs> one, of, one of the worst. I wouldn't say it was the worst. Uh, famously, I, I did very much dislike that episode. So, mm-hmm. uh, All right. Our next question comes from Michael Huxley, who writes, not really a question, but there were two episodes I felt something was missing. In the Kabbalah episode, it was a fascinating history, but never really talked about how it became a Hollywood craze. How did that happen? And... When Jimmy was interviewing his ghost hunting teacher, they talked about ghosts as recordings and mental cleansing. Jimmy's never talked about the faith perspective of ghosts as recordings, as I recall, just as the souls of the dead. What would the faith perspective on ghosts as place memories or recordings be? And how about the faith perspective on mental cleansing, not as a blessing or exorcism? Okay, so um, in regard to the first question, we we touched at least briefly on how Kabbalah got popular in Hollywood uh, because there is what's known as the Kabbalah Center in Hollywood. It was started by a particular group of Kabbalah enthusiasts in the Jewish community to popularize uh, the knowledge of Kabbalah in the Hollywood community, and that's the real origin of how it became popular. We didn't go on to we didn't go into it in depth, you know, the history of the Kabbalah Center, but it's basically the Kabbalah Center that's popularized it there. When it comes to um the second question, it's not ghosts that are recordings. Ghosts are the spirits of deceased people. Um what is in parapsychology what's regarded as a place memory or a recording is a haunting. 
and it's thought that hauntings are not actually the souls of people. It's just a psychic impression that's left on a place by someone when they were alive. So it's not hauntings are not evidence for survival beyond death. Um, it's like if you if you live in an, if you live in a house for decades, you, the house might be able to pick up an impression. You might leave like let's say you you got a staircase, you walk down the staircase all the time. You might leave a psychic impression walking down that staircase, and then when you move out of the house, people will who are sensitive to this could pick up on that impression of you walking down the staircase, and they just see you walking down the staircase repeatedly. You don't do anything else. You may be still alive. You may just be living in a new house somewhere, but you left a recording or impression in the, your previous house, and that's what the haunting is. Um, from the faith perspective, there's nothing in the faith perspective that says people can't leave psychic impressions in places. Um, there's nothing that either supports or contradicts that. So that would be a matter for science, specifically the science of parapsychology to uh, investigate and, and determine, just like the sciences look at other natural phenomena. So there's no contradiction to the faith there. Um, in terms of um, cl so-called cleansing efforts, like Lloyd talked about in the case of one haunting, he noticed the, the child in the room had some Star Wars stickers. And so he pretended to be a Jedi and waved a lightsaber around and to basically disrupt the haunting. Because if you have a recording, it should be possible in principle to disrupt the recording. It's like if you have a magnetic cassette tape, you can take a powerful magnet and run it over that tape and erase the recording. Um, in fact, radio stations back in the day, I now everything's digital, but back in the day, they would have big, powerful handheld electromagnets that you would wave over tapes, and so they could recycle the tapes by erasing the recordings on them. You can do the same thing with videotapes. And presumably, if there's some recording medium, uh, you know, some method by which this psychic impression is laid down in a location, it would be possible to disrupt it. And one way of disrupting it might be having a priest come over and bless it, Another way of disrupting it might be having an exorcism, although you wouldn't really need one because it's a recording. It's not a demon. Uh, but people have tried various methods of trying to disrupt the recordings so that they don't bug people. You know, if you don't want to constantly see this creepy person walking down your staircase, you could do something to try to disrupt that recording and not be bothered by it anymore. And people who have tried these they often call it cleansing, but it's really disrupting the recording. And people have reported success with doing that. In fact, Lloyd reported that, you know, he had some some psychics with him. And after he did his lightsaber disruption, some of them came in or at least one of them came into the room and said, what did you do? It's not here anymore. So they do report success with it. And there's nothing from the faith perspective that says you can't disrupt a recording, whether it's a psychic recording or a magnetic recording on a tape. All right. The next question comes from Adel Gettel, Adam Gettelfinger, who writes, Jimmy, do you think there's any connection to the flood in Genesis with the young Dryas flooding of approximately 14,000 years ago? So the younger Dryas is a period of increased glaciation 
in the um, about, you know, it's like 14 to really more like 11 to 12,000 years ago in that kind of time frame. Um, Earth had been coming out of a period of of uh, out of an ice age, out of a lot of glaciation. And it had been getting warmer, but then all of a sudden it gets colder again for, you know, around a thousand, a little more than a thousand years. And that's called the Younger Dryas period. And so it started to freeze up again. But then at the end of the Younger Dryas period, um, it starts to warm up again. And as it warms up, and there are a whole bunch of theories about Younger Dryas, and we will cover them in the future. But as it warms up, you know, the ice started to melt again, and that would have caused flooding. And I think it is possible that that could be one of the um, one of the things that influenced flood legends in the ancient Near East, including the biblical account of the flood. Uh, there are indications. In fact, I have a book that I've I've read about this of ancient flood like events that the memory of which has been preserved for tens of thousands of years, like, for example, among Australian Aborigines. And so, and there are other traditions. I've been doing a study of traditions that are tens of thousands of years old, some of which are astronomical, I mean, meaning dealing with the stars. And we've even talked about a few of those on the show. So it is possible to preserve the core of a tradition over extremely long periods of time. And I therefore think it's possible I don't think it's certain, but I think it's possible that um, that the melting at the end of the Younger Dryas could have uh, been the basis for some of the ancient Near Eastern flood legends and thus could have influenced the story of Noah's flood. Um, it's not the only source, though, that could be responsible for those. There are other things other massive flood events that also could be involved. Um, you know, the Tigris and the Euphrates in Mesopotamia flood periodically. And there have been, you know, uh, other events of large-scale flooding in the area, and those also could play a role. So I don't think it's impossible that the that the end of the Younger Dryas melt-off could have played a role, but I, I don't think it's certain, and I think there are other um, more recent flooding events that also could have played a role. Our next question comes from Christy, who writes, I recently read a, ver a written version of a sermon that seems to suggest that two Marys were present at Lazarus's resurrection. Mary, who was Lazarus's sister, and Mary, probably Magdalene. Elizabeth Schrader, a New Testament scholar, was writing her thesis and looking at Papyrus 6, which contains the Greek version of John 11, when she noticed that the papyrus shows two Marys instead of a Mary and a Martha. After looking into it some more, she claims that one of the Marys was changed to Martha in a 4th century translation. Rereading Lazarus' resurrection story with Mary, Lazarus' sister, and Mary Magdalene puts Martha's confession of who Jesus is into Mary Magdalene's mouth. She then parallels the story of Peter's confession with what she reads as Mary's confession and takes Magdala to be a new name, similar to Cephas, meaning tower. Her argument seems to have had enough behind it that the Harvard Theological Review picked it up. So my questions are, have you heard about this? What are your thoughts on it? What would the faith implications be of Mary Magdalene having a confession and new name, similar to Peter's? I'm familiar with the Greek alphabet, though I don't read Greek, and I could tell the difference between an iota and a theta if it were typed, 
but doing so on an old papyrus is beyond my skill, even if I could find the right spot. I tried looking at a Greek-English translation and comparing it to Papyrus 6, couldn't make it out at all. I tried to do a bit of superficial background research to confirm the claim, and I was able to find the Harvard Theological Review article mentioned and confirm the existence of the Nestle Aland Translation Committee of the Greek New Testament. So I am familiar with this claim. Um, I've I've watched some videos uh, interviewing her about this theory. Um, I'm open to the idea that this could be the case, but I'm skeptical. Um, in particular, one of the reasons I'm skeptical is that the two female figures in John 11, which is the resurrection account, are described as sisters. And it's very unlikely, even though Mary was the most common female name in first century Jewish Palestine, um, it's very unlikely you'd have two sisters in the same family, both named Mary. Uh, and so I, I recognize that, you know, this, that recently scholars have been considering this as a possibility, but I think it's got uh, an uphill battle to be accepted. Uh, by the scholarly community. I think people are going to continue to be doubtful of it. Um, but, you know, I'm open to, to seeing where the manuscript evidence goes. And it's possible she's correct, but I don't think it's, I, I don't feel confident at all that she's correct because I can see elements pointing in the other direction. Another thing that I'm skeptical of is that the name Magdalene means tower, in her case. Now, it's not that Magdala doesn't mean tower, but we know of a location um, on the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee that was called Magdala. And presumably it was called that because someone built a tower there. But in the first century, it was a fishing village. And um, if you have someone named Mary Magdalene, that is most logically understood as Mary from Magdala, just like if you have like the word uh, Nazareth is related to the Hebrew uh, word Netzer, which means shoot or branch. And so if you have Jesus, Jesus Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth, that's most naturally understood as Jesus from the place called Nazareth, not Jesus the shoot or Jesus the branch. I mean, it could have a secondary significance in that way, but the normal expected way to read it would be Jesus from the place called Nazareth. And the normal expected way to read Mary Magdalene is Mary from the place called Magdala. Um, so I'm skeptical of various elements of this. It doesn't really have any faith significance because um, the specific identities of individuals mentioned in scripture, especially individuals who don't have a, um, like a role in the church. And we're not talking about St. Peter um, or one of the 12 other individuals mentioned in the New Testament, you know, are of historical significance, but it's not really an item of the faith that um, Mary of Bethany, which is this, uh, woman's other name, and Martha, were two individuals who had exactly those names. If it, if it turned out, I mean, one, we have other evidence for the existence of them as the two sisters. They're mentioned in Luke's gospel, for example. 
And if it turned out that John 11 had was really about two Marys and not Mary and Martha, then, um, okay, that would be an interesting fact, um, you know, to take into account, but it wouldn't really affect the substance of the faith. All right. Our next question comes from AJ Beals, who asks, what is Jimmy's preferred pipe tobacco or tobaccos? <laughs> uh, well, it's a little hard to answer that because um, what most tobacconists do is they they will purchase tobaccos from a supplier and then they apply a locally chosen name to them. So the manufacturer has a, a product name that the customer normally doesn't encounter. This is at least the case for bulk tobaccos. Now, if you go into a, a pipe shop, they'll have like little commercial tins of tobacco. And I tend not to get those. I tend to purchase tobacco by the pound and you get a, they just put it in a plastic bag and it's got a locally chosen name after it uh, attached to it. Um, so I have no idea what the manufacturer name is because the tobacconist himself picked the names that he was going to market the different brands under. What I can say is that there is, um, and I, I do get my tobacco from actual tobacconists. Number one, it's very hard these days to find tobacco in a supermarket or a drugstore. I remember when I was a kid, I could go into some, uh, you know, supermarkets and drugstores, and they would have long shelves of different kinds of pipe tobacco. You know, I mean, like even two long, long shelves of pipe tobacco. Um, but it's it's almost impossible to find. It's at least very difficult to find in stores, these in supermarkets and drugstores these days. And it's lower quality. Um, it is it tends to be, have sat on the shelf for a long time. The packages are not that great in terms of insulating it. And so it tends to dry out and 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 can go stale. So I tend to get my tobacco from actual tobacconists. What I can say is that one type I sort of have two preferences. One type is a is here in San Diego. It's marketed under the local name better than Captain Black. Now, Captain Black is a dime store, drugstore quality tobacco that you would frequently see. It started in the 1970s. It became very popular. It's It became the most popular, you know, supermarket type brand of pipe tobacco in America. And, um, and so... Uh, you, it's one of the few that you can still sometimes find in a supermarket or a gas station or a drugstore. Um, and so what better than Captain Black is, is a type of tobacco that is similar to Captain Black, but better. It's made with better ingredients. It's fresher and so forth. Um And I, one of the things I like about it is it it burns very smoothly. It doesn't burn hot, which some pipe tobaccos do. They Some burn cooler and some burn hotter. I also, so that's one kind of pipe tobacco that I like. I also like um, some pipe tobaccos that are sweeter, that have elements of uh, flavor notes of, of like fruit in them. So cherry, strawberry, blueberry, things like that. 
and some of them do burn a little hotter. So I don't, because the the flavorings you add affect the temperature at which a tobacco burns. So I I I do like some of the kind of sweeter, more fruit flavored tobaccos, but some of them burn a little hot for me, and so it it just varies. Our next question comes from Paul Bauer, who writes, what is the history of the chapter and verse designations in the Bible? And what part of the Bible would you renumber? Well, um, okay, so with the exception of the book of Psalms, which has always had the numbers in it, at least as far back as, as we you know, can tell, or at least if not the numbers, it's been divided into chapters from time immemorial. The other chapter divisions were added by uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man named Stephen Langton, who lived between around 1150 A.D. and 1228 A.D. So he was kind of the last part of the 12th century, the beginning of the 13th century, and he was the Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury. And for a long time, it was just chapter divisions. They didn't have verse divisions. Over time, a variety of different schemes for verse divisions were tried. The one that we find in modern Bibles was developed by a French uh, Protestant gentleman named Robert Estienne, who lived in the 16th century. He was born in 1503. He died in 1599, and he published an edition of the Bible Uh, containing verse divisions in 1551. And the verse divisions, you know, made it a lot easier to find exact passages quickly. Um, So they were popular. I mean, that's why people were trying different schemes of them. And the one that Robert Estienne introduced in 1551 eventually became the standard that's used by publishers today, for the most part. In terms of where I would revise things, Um, I'm sure there are any number of places, but two occur to me right off the top of my head. One of them is I would change the break between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, because if you read Genesis 1, it describes the first six days of creation. But at the beginning of Genesis 2, it describes the seventh day of creation. And then the second creation account starts in Genesis 2, verse 4. So this doesn't make any sense. The seven days are clearly one literary unit. They're meant to go together. And so I would move the boundary for chapter 1 from after the sixth day to after the seventh day. So I would begin Genesis 2 with what is currently Genesis 2, 4 which is where the second creation account begins, in order to keep the seven-day literary unit together. Another place that I would change the chapter division is at the other end of the Bible. It's in the book of Revelation. Uh, There, I would change the chapter break between chapters 13 and 14. The reason is, at the end of chapter 13, we have the introduction of the number and mark of the beast. And people stop reading because it's the end of the chapter. And if they kept reading into chapter 14, they would learn that the mark of the beast is immediately contrasted with the mark of Christ's followers. And so 
they because they tend to isolate the mark of the beast, they think it's literal, like there's going to be a literal mark or a literal chip or something that people have. Whereas if you read it in context of, oh, you've got the mark of the beast and then you've got the mark of Christ. Well, it's clear the mark of Christ is an invisible spiritual mark. And so that's what the mark of the beast is, too. It's not a literal tattoo or a literal chip or anything like that. It's an invisible spiritual mark, the same way the mark of Christ on his followers is an invisible spiritual mark. And so by having that chapter division there, it separates these two things from each other when people read it, and it thus obscures the meaning. So to help bring out the meaning better, I would rearrange the chapter divisions so that you get both the mark of the beast and the mark of Christ in the same chapter. All right. Our next question comes from Paul Binner, who writes, Jesus probably wasn't speaking Greek when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. Any thoughts on what the Aramaic word was that was ultimately translated into the mysterious word epiusion in the Greek? Yeah, so um, what this is referring to is in the Lord's Prayer, we have this clause, give us this day our daily bread. And that's a guess at what Jesus meant, because the word he uses for daily in Greek is epiousios. And that word is nowhere else in Greek literature. It is only found in connection with the Lord's Prayer. The early Christian writer Origen, who was a native Greek speaker, commented that Nobody was familiar with this word. Learned literary people didn't use this word, and common ordinary people didn't use this word. And um, he speculated that the evangelists coined it when they were writing their Gospels, um, because it did not exist in previous Greek. And so exactly what it means is kind of a mystery. And there have been a bunch of translations, like maybe it means the bread we need or the bread for the future or the bread for tomorrow or the bread for the next day or in in latin um they didn't know what jerome didn't know what it meant either he translated it as super substantial which probably according to some means like our supernatural bread um which could be a reference to the eucharist but um it's mysterious now in terms of what the aramaic word might have been we'd have a better idea if we knew what the Greek word meant, but we don't. And without having a, without knowing what the Greek word means, it's kind of hard to back translate it into Aramaic. But we do have a possibility because there were translations of the New Testament, including the Lord's Prayer, into Aramaic early on. Uh, the most famous is a translation of the New Testament known as the Pshitta. And um, so, for example, you can look in the Pshitta or in other early Aramaic translations of the Lord's Prayer and see what word is used there. And the word that's used is Mahar. Mahar means tomorrow or the next day or the future. And so you could translate this clause, uh, give us today our bread for tomorrow or give us today our bread for the next day, or give us this day our bread for the future, or give us this day our future bread, things like that. The difficulty, though, is these Aramaic translations were made after the Greek New Testament was written, 
And if the authors of these translations were translating the way modern translators do, and if they didn't know what epiousios meant because it was not a word in Greek at the time, they would be guessing that that what Jesus meant was mahar. Um, so it could be no more than a guess, just like they could be in the same situation we are. On the other hand, it is possible that the Aramaic of the Lord's Prayer was remembered in in Aramaic-speaking Christian communities. And so it could be that when they, even though they, for most of the New Testament, they were back translating from Greek into Aramaic, when they came to the Lord's Prayer, they had a memory of the prayer and therefore were not relying on back translation, but on their memory of how they maybe said it in their liturgy. And so it could be that the word mahar is the correct word, but we're not sure and we can't prove it for certain. Our next question comes from Nicholas Swoboda, who writes, I suppose this isn't exactly a mystery question, but how should we refer to Benedict XVI now that he's entered into his reward? Is it most appropriate to continue to refer to him as Pope Emeritus, or do we revert back to plain old Pope? We revert back to plain old Pope. Um, it, that's what we do with every other Pope in history, even the ones that resigned, like Celestine V. We just call him Pope Celestine V today. We don't say Pope Emeritus Celestine V. The Emeritus title is is useful when a pope has resigned and is still alive because it tells you he's not the pope right now. And so it's useful while he's still alive, but it loses that usefulness once he's dead. He's no everybody knows a dead pope is no longer pope. So the fact he's dead tells you he's not pope now and you don't need the word emeritus. It's superfluous at that point and so the historic pattern of referring to a retired pope who's deceased as pope just like we refer to all other deceased popes is is the would seem to be the obvious way to go our next question comes from lauren who writes we've all heard about demonic possession but what about angelic possession theoretically angels aren't any less powerful than demons which means they should be able to possess a human if invited and there were some compelling need yet i can't think of a single instance of this happening in the bible what say you, Jimmy? Can angels possess humans? And if so, why do they seem to abstain from the practice? Well, you're right. There don't seem to be any cases of angelic possession in the Bible. Um, I would agree. I think it's quite true that if demons can possess people, have that meaning they have the, I can't say physical ability, but they have the ability to possess humans. That's something that's intrinsic to to the nature of demons and their nature is angelic. So I would say that a, um, that an angel could also do so. Um, I think that's possible in terms of why we don't have more accounts of it. I suspect there probably are accounts of it in the last 2000 years of Christian history. I'm familiar with fictional versions of it. For example, in the Decameron, one of the stories is about a lascivious priest who is attracted to a woman who's an, she's a noble woman and she's not very bright she's referred to in translation as things like 
Lady Dimwit. And the uh, the priest <clears throat> wants wants her, and so he goes to her and says, "The Archangel Michael has um, has contacted me. I've had a private revelation from Saint Michael the Archangel, and he has uh, he wants to experience what human love is like because as an angel." He doesn't have a body. He doesn't know what human love is like. And so the Archangel Michael wants to wants to bestow a great blessing on you. He wants to possess me, and then you and I can have intimate relations, and thus the Archangel Michael will learn what it's what human love is like. And Lady Dimwit is taken this is a comedy, and so Lady Dimwit is taken in by this. She says, oh, what an honor, you know, to have the Archangel Michael to receive the Archangel Michael in this way. And of course, this is all a lie. And since it's a it's it's a comedy, the the priest gets his comeuppance. You know, people who are not quite as dim as Lady Dimwit realize exactly what is going on. And so the priest gets punished. But, you know, this is a fictional account involving angelic possession. I would not be at all surprised to learn of accounts of a non-fictional nature, so ostensible, actual angelic possessions, but I'm not aware of any. And if I ever discover some, and maybe someone in the audience knows of such accounts, in which case I'd love to, I'd love to hear about them, but I need to then evaluate them and see, is this something that we actually have good evidence for, or is it are, could they just be legends or folk tales that don't really have a historical basis? Or could they be explained by something else, like a demon pretending to be a good angel and possessing someone? Um, you know, that would have to be evaluated. But I think it's possible in terms of why it's not r- reported the way other cases of possession are reported. Um, I would think it's because of free will. That um, even though demons cannot simply override our free will, they uh, they can't just utterly remove it. Demons are, are bullies, and they 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 don't really care about your free will. They just want to torture you and cause problems. <clears throat> and whereas angels don't want to do that, ain't the good ones um, will respect that God gave you free will, and therefore they're not going to interfere with that. They're not going to try to seize control of you. And and what would happen if you voluntarily let an angel in control? Well, there that might be possible, morally speaking, if there was a special reason that you needed an angel inside of you to do something. But that doesn't seem to happen very often, if at all, and so we don't see that happening very often. There's also no custom of Christians asking angels to come into them and and take control temporarily. So I think between the absence of a need for that happening and the absence of a custom and the possibility that it might just not be God's will for this to ever happen, we don't see it happening. Incidentally, another um, a case. I, this is another fictional account, but um, there uh, in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, 
there is an episode I want to I want to say it's called The Reckoning, but I may be misremembering. Um, But you have these angelic beings known as the prophets and you have their opposite who are demonic beings called the paw wraiths. And in one episode, you have um, a paw wraith possess involuntarily. So this is the uh, effectively a demon possessing Jake Sisko, the son of the station's commander. And to battle the paw wraith that's in Jake, one of the prophets, so an angelic being, possesses Major Kira, who is a who voluntarily lets the the prophet possess her so that it can do battle with the demon that's in Jake. And so in this scenario, there is a special need for why Major Kira needs to voluntarily allow a prophet into her uh, in order to have this prophecy battle that's in Bajoran prophecy. So it's I can imagine scenarios where there could be a need for an angel to let an angel into you, but um, but that's a fictional scenario. I don't know whether that occurs in real life. Incidentally, while we're on the subject of uh, of possessions, there are reports that not only can an- angels possess someone, whether it's a uh, a good angel or a bad angel, um, there are reports of human souls possessing other people. Um, that happens in some cases in a trans mediumship and where a medium and, you know, we've talked about mediumship and we'll talk about mediumship more in the future and, you know, the problems associated with it. But trans mediums will sometimes invite a human spirit or what they perceive to be a human spirit into them to speak through them temporarily. Um, but there's also involuntary possession by human souls in the literature. In Jewish literature, such a soul is known as a dibuk. Uh, dibuks are departed human souls that are very attached to this life and want to seize control of living humans. They're also, this is also reported in Christian literature. In, in Christian circles, we don't tend to call them dibbocks, but there are reports of deceased human souls seizing, possess, seizing control of a living human being for one purpose or another. And we will be talking, of course, about more about possession and dibbocks in future episodes. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by... Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Our next question comes from Thomas Salerno, who writes, Hello, Jimmy and Dom. I'm sure this is on the big topic list for future episodes, but I was interested if Jimmy had any preliminary thoughts on the so-called Philadelphia Experiment a World War II mystery that has interested me for many years. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm familiar with the Philadelphia Experiment. Uh, We'll have a link to it for people who'd like more information. 
it allegedly was an experiment that was performed in kind of the mid 20th century by the U.S. Navy, and it involved either, depending on whose story you you credit, um, it involved either trying to teleport a ship from one location to another or make it invisible, or maybe they were trying to make it invisible and then it teleported, you know, stuff like that. And it injured the people who were on board the ship. Some of them died. Some of them went crazy, things like that. Um, we, it is on the list for future shows and I, I have actually read a good bit about it and the indications are spoiler warning. It's a hoax. Um, it, it, the, the, the stories connected with it are not properly sourced. Um, and they appear to be the creations of a gentleman he went by more than one name. Um, the name is his his English. His name in English was Charles, and I'm uh, Charles Allen, if I recall correctly. And he also went by a Spanish name of Carlos Allende. Um, but it appears to have all been fabricated by him. But it's still an interesting story, and we can talk about it in the future. Our next question comes from Mocha Bell, who writes, "Hi guys, question." Though using a Ouija board will never be an option for me, I'm curious about your thoughts regarding any actual spiritual dangers it might present. Is it a doorway to the hellmouth? So the idea that Ouija boards are particularly dangerous is something that was popularized by the novel The Exorcist. Prior to that, you really didn't have this. Um, this is a kind of a an urban legend that got started as a result of the novel The Exorcist, uh, and which, of course, then was made into a movie that you know popularized this further. Um, prior to that point, there was no there was no history of like people play with Ouija boards and get possessed and do do evil things. You know, this wasn't really. A, a commonly reported thing. And so there was no evidential basis for um, for saying Ouija boards are unusually dangerous. Um, now, that's not to say that they can't be dangerous or that someone hasn't ever gotten possessed um, after playing with a Ouija board, but there is no track record of that. It's not something that was regularly reported. It was just what was in the fictional fictionalized scenario in The Exorcist, and that started a legend that Ouija boards are especially dangerous. But if you think about it, I mean, why would that be? I mean, okay, so number one, they were marketed as games, and they're very popular games, and they were played by loads and loads of children. If they were that dangerous. Why wasn't there a track record of kids getting possessed all over the place after they played with this game? Um, <clears throat> you know, and and there just wasn't. So I don't think that that Ouija boards are unusually dangerous for a few reasons. One reason is that um, Ouija boards usually have nothing at all paranormal going on with them. We've talked about the idiomotor effect before, where people subconsciously are making small movements with their hands without really realizing it. 
Um, and, and that happens with, uh, writing devices like a, like a Ouija board where you have a group of letters and you've got a pointing device and people put their fingers on the pointing device and, and it seems to slide towards certain letters and spell out a message. Okay. Normally that's the idiomotor effect. It's one of two things. It's either the idiomotor effect, um, which is, um, you know, uh, purely natural or the kids, one of the kids is deliberately pushing it so that it goes towards certain letters and spells out a message the kid wants it to spell out. Um, so most of the time, I don't think anything paranormal is happening with a Ouija board at all. It's either idiomotor effect or hoaxing by one of the kids who are playing with it or other people who are playing with it. Um, it is possible that sometimes you might contact a ghost uh, with a Ouija board. You know, I mean, that's what these people are ostensibly trying to do. And sometimes it might work because sometimes God allows contact with ghosts, even when people are contacting ghosts in ways that they're not supposed to. Like when King Saul goes to the witch of Endor and contacts the deceit, the ghost of the prophet Samuel and both second Kings where this happens and the book of Sirach confirm it's really Samuel. It is not a demon pretending to be Samuel. It's Samuel. And so God does sometimes allow people to contact deceased spirits, even in ways that they're not allowed to do. And if that can happen through a medium like the Witch of Endor, same thing could happen through a Ouija board. It's also possible that you might contact a demon through it. But overt contact with demons tends to be rare. And um, and we're told in the New Testament to test the spirits, not to have no contact with the spirits, but to test them. So I view a Ouija board just as another form of spirit contact. Um, there's nothing about a physical board with letters on it that is going to be unusually dangerous. It's not going to be any more dangerous than contacting a medium, let's say. And, um, you know, I'm not endorsing contacting a medium, but most people who go to mediums don't end up possessed. And most mediums it, it, it don't end up, you know, with a demon projectile vomiting and stuff like that. Um, so there are dangers in this area, but I don't think that Ouija boards are unusually dangerous. It's just a mechanism for implementing spirit contact it's not a it's not an unusually dangerous one so i think that the dangers of ouija boards have been way overblown normally i don't think there's anything at all going on of a paranormal nature i think it's just the idiomotor effect or a kid hoaxing it sometimes you might actually make contact with a ghost or even a demon but that's not the norm that's the exception, not what usually happens. So I don't recommend that people play with Ouija boards. I, I recommend you don't. But I also don't think that the dangers, which are real, should be exaggerated. Okay, that's a good balance to uh, yeah. uh, way to approach that. And and we don't need to be unusually afraid of Ouija boards compared to other things. Mm-hmm. I used to live in Salem, Massachusetts, where the Parker mm -hmm. Brothers factory was that made Ouija boards. Uh -huh. It's kind of an interesting 
coincidence that he was yeah. in Salem, known for the the uh, witch trials and all that sort of stuff. They made a big deal out of it. Yeah. Our next question comes from Paula S. Welker, who writes King Arthur, real person, complete legend, combination of both, which I assume is most likely. And if so, who might he have been based upon? Well, from what I understand, the scholarly consensus these days tend to lean, tends to lean towards the idea that King Arthur is purely a legend, though there are a few scholars and many more popular writers who uh, who advocate that King Arthur was a real person, or at least based on a real person. And there are some candidates that have been named, uh, including one guy whose name was like Artor or something like that. Um I haven't investigated the historicity of King Arthur in detail, so I don't really want to comment on it in depth, but we will have links to articles about King Arthur and the historicity of King Arthur so that you can read more. And we may well discuss King Arthur and his historicity in a future episode. I really hope someday that Prince William's son, Arthur, becomes king and does take the name King Arthur. That would just be cool. <laughs> it would be cool, but it's unlikely because he would be setting himself up for for being criticized. Is who does this guy think he is? Exactly. It's um, like why no pope, even if his name yeah. is Pietro, is gonna is gonna take the regnal name Peter. Peter the second. Because like, who nope. do you think you are? <laughs> right. Our next question comes from Jenilyn Martinez, who writes, uh, "Hi Jimmy, I'd love it if someday you could use your research skills to find out." who the founder of the Nation of Islam really was. From what I've heard, no one's entirely sure what race or nationality he even was. Yeah, so we'll have links to the Nation of Islam and to the guy who founded it, whose name was Wallace, or who called himself Wallace Fard Muhammad. Um, He claimed to be from Saudi Arabia. But the actual evidence suggests that he was really from, if I remember correctly, it was either like it was like New Zealand or someplace. He also wasn't actually black. He appeared to be a white man who was trying to pass as black. And it was noted that his fingerprints were identical to a convert to a convict named Wallace Dodd Ford, who had been in prison in the United States. So that all of that is disputed by members of the Nation of Islam. They say he oh no, he's he was he 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 wasn't a white guy. He 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 wasn't a New Zealander. He he wasn't Wallace Dodd Ford the convict. He was a he was a black guy who was a prophet and so forth. But the the actual evidence would point towards him being Wallace Dodd Ford. And um, and and we may well look into him in a future episode. I definitely plan on doing a future episode on Malcolm X. And so we will be talking about the Nation of Islam in the future. And we may do multiple episodes on the Nation of Islam because there are a number of mysteries connected with it. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure we'll have opportunity to discuss the identity of its founder, Wallace Fard Muhammad. Our next question comes from Chris Buston, who writes, Hi, Jimmy, I'm a new Catholic convert, yet I would say that the topic of evolution still tests my faith the most. My question has two parts. First, is the amount of suffering, death, and generic, genetic mutation involved in our long natural history incompatible with theism? Second, 
When Jesus refers to Old Testament characters like Adam and Jonah, he seems to be taking these events literally. Does that mean Catholics aren't permitted to view events like the creation, the flood, Jonah and the whale, and the Tower of Babel as allegories? Thanks so much. So um, in regard to the first question, I don't see the amount of um, of suffering and so forth in the animal world as remotely incompatible with theism. Any amount of evil is tolerable if God has a good reason for it. Any amount of moral evil, any amount of physical evil. And according to the Catholic faith, the only reason that God tolerates any evil, either moral or physical, is because he's going to bring good out of it. This It's right there in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says that. And so all of the um, suffering we see in the natural world, you know, whether it's suffering that involves death or not, um, is something God will ultimately bring good out of, an equal or greater good. And so consequently, God has a good reason for allowing this suffering. Also, um, when you consider animals, you know, they, I, I think there are a few additional thoughts that are relevant. Um, you know, they're not human, so they don't have rights. God does have a good reason for allowing animal suffering. I think on balance, for the vast majority of animals, they have good lifetime balances. It's like, you know, if you're a human being, let's say you have 80 years of life and you have a really happy life. And then in your last year of life, you have health problems that cause you to suffer. Now, this is an ideal situation, you might say, because we all have suffering at different points in our lives. But the point is, if I had 80 years of good life as a human, followed by one year of sickness and suffering, I'd say I came out on the plus side in terms of the balance. I had I had good times for 80 years and, and only one year of suffering. Well, the same thing is true, not of, and that's an extreme case, but that's true of most humans. Most humans feel on balance life is worth living, even though it contains some suffering. And the same thing is true of most animals. So even though there are situations where animals um, do suffer, most animals find life worth living. And, and on balance, I think they come out on the plus side. There may be occasional animals that um, suffer so much and have so little good in their lives that 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 wouldn't be the case. But that's going to be the exception rather than the rule. The rule is most animals, like most humans, find find life good on balance. Um, and if you have good on balance, you can tolerate some suffering. So. Um, there's a good reason, you know, it, you're already compensated by the good you had in life. Then there's the question of do animals have an afterlife? Because if they have an afterlife, then no matter what they suffered in this life, God can make it up to them in the next. Just like for humans, no matter what a human suffered in this life, God can and will make it up to the human in the next life. And if animals have afterlives, then the same thing would be true for them. Uh, in fact, we did a whole episode. It was episode 203. So if you want to listen to it, you can go to mysterious.fm slash 203. We did a whole episode on animal afterlife. And 
as surprising as I was, as surprised as I was to discover it, we actually have some empirical evidence for animal afterlife. And so between all these different reasons, I don't see any problem between um, between the idea of suffering in the animal world and theism. Theism has multiple different explanations for different aspects of the problem of animal suffering. And, um, you know, in a particular instance, I may not be able to say, well, this is the exact reason for why God is allowing suffering in this case. But in terms of the theoretical structure, it, it, it works. As long as God has a good reason, then, um, then, and as long as, as, as long as he compensates either in this life or in the afterlife for any unjust or excessive suffering that, um, an animal experienced, he's not being cruel. And I don't see a problem for theism as a result. When it comes to New Testament figures like Jesus or St. Paul, speaking of Old Testament figures without raising the question of their reality, uh, you know, was Adam a historical individual or was Jonah? Um, I don't see a fundamental problem here. Now, it can be natural to take those as historical references, like when Jesus or Paul might refer to King David, let's say, or King Solomon. Um, but we do have, even in English, a conventional mode of speech where we can refer, where we can refer to someone who was um, not a historical individual without raising the question of his historicity. For example, if I say Sherlock Holmes was a great detective, I'm not implying Sherlock Holmes was a real historical figure. Or if I say the prodigal son was a really kind man, or not, or I could say he's a prodigal son. Actually, I was thinking of the Good Samaritan. If I said the Good Samaritan was a really kind man, or the prodigal son was lucky that his father received him back so generously, you know, I'm not asserting that the prodigal son or the good Samaritan were literal historical individuals. And so I think what you have to do in assessing this question is figure out what's the nature of the individual in the source text. In the case of Sherlock Holmes, the source text is the stories written by Arthur Conan Doyle, and it's clear they're fiction except in the great game that Sherlockians sometimes play, where they're treated as if they're real history. Um, similarly, with the, with the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, or Lazarus from Lazarus and the Rich Man, if I said Lazarus had a really tough life, well, okay, in the source text, these are parables. And you can't count on a person in a parable being a real historical individual, even though they may, might be based on a real historical individual. Um, and then that informs you how to read later references to them. So if you're considering an Old Testament figure like Adam or Jonah, what you have to do is go to the source text and say, how does this source text function? If the source text is meant to be literal history, then the historical figure is going to be real. And that informs you how to re read later passages. But if you discover the source text is something other than literal history, then you have to be more careful 
It could be that it's a didactic text, meaning a text meaning to teach a lesson rather than convey historical information, in which case it could involve a um, a historical individual that's being presented in a non-literal context, or it could involve a character that exists for didactic purposes, like the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. And then that will inform how you read later texts. So I think the source text controls the way later references need to be read. But I hope that helps. We hope you've enjoyed this patron's question show. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is only possible because of the generosity of our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to support Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and have your questions answered on future shows for patrons, go to sqpn.com slash give. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 261. And we'd love to hear your theories. What are your theories about any of the patron questions that Jimmy answered? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. You can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where we have the video version of the Mysterious World podcast. And uh, the video actually adds a lot. So definitely check it out. And while you're there, um, I am trying to grow my channel. We're trying to get up to 40,000 subscribers. So I'd really appreciate it. If you take a moment and subscribe and hit the bell notification so that uh, you always get a notification, whether it's for Mysterious World or one of my other videos. Also, if you like and comment, that tells the algorithm that you like it and commented on it. And that'll tell the algorithm to share it with other people, too. So that helps us out. And thank you. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week, we're going to be telling you the story of one of the most famous psychological experiments ever. In 1973, psychologist David Rosenhan published a famous study called On Being Sane in Insane Places. It concerned people who checked into mental institutions claiming to be hearing voices that just said single words like thud, hollow, and empty. Although they reported no other symptoms they were and were absolutely normal in every respect, They were immediately diagnosed with schizophrenia, and their caretakers never realized that they were, in fact, sane. So, what's the truth about the Rosenhan experiment? Why is it so important, and what have recent investigators learned about it? It's a very surprising story that you won't want to miss. Excellent. Wow, cool. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. So until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom.
And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash stargate.